Hello, and welcome to Employment Law Legends, Episode 5, Keeping the Sabbath, Transworld Airlines versus Hardison. My name is Paul Rinnan. I am an employment and labor law attorney with the law firm Ogletree Deacons in Houston, Texas. How far would you be willing to go to practice your religious beliefs? Would you be willing to lose your job over them? This question has a special significance for Americans. The United States began as a haven for religious refugees fleeing Europe in the 17th century. Yet surprisingly, although freedom of religion is one of the most valued civil rights in America, discrimination based on religion is on the rise as workforces diversify and employees become more willing to share their religious beliefs. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission reports that discrimination claims based on religion have doubled in the last 20 years. Litigation usually arises when an employer refuses to provide accommodations for an employee's religious beliefs. There are endless examples of conflict. A Catholic employee asks for Christmas Day off. Evangelical Christians want time off to attend church on Sundays. A Nigerian employee requests five weeks of unpaid leave to participate in the funeral rites of his father in Africa. A Sikh refuses to remove his turban. Muslim women ask for an exemption from company dress policies to wear headscarves. Rastafarians don't want to cut their dreadlocks. Jews request the Sabbath off. The requests for accommodations are many, and often pose serious conflicts between faith and the workplace. But what is the legal test to decide whether an accommodation is a reasonable one for a business? How much burden must a company demonstrate before it is relieved of the obligation to accommodate an employee's religious beliefs. Congress and the courts have struggled with this issue for decades. In 1977, the United States Supreme Court finally announced in a landmark case that only a minimal level of accommodation was necessary. A de minimis burden, they called it. The case, Transworld Airlines v. Hardison, was controversial the moment it was announced. Two of the court's liberal justices, Thurgood Marshall, and William Brennan, issued a dissent made of fire and brimstone. They accused the majority of inflicting a fatal blow to all efforts to accommodate religion in the workplace and eroding the nation's hospitality to religious diversity. I'm sure the two justices were wondering just how things fell apart so badly. This was supposed to be a simple case. Congress had just amended Title VII to allow accommodations. Larry Hardison the plaintiff in the case, believed that he needed to observe the Sabbath once per week. The accommodation he requested was straightforward and looked relatively easy to grant for a large airline. It wasn't like he was asking the company to move mountains. But, as we'll soon find out, things were a lot more complicated. Because there was a union contract involved. The case began in Kansas City, Missouri. Situated on the state's western edge, near the confluence of the Kansas and Missouri rivers, the city was originally founded in the early 19th century by the son of Baptist missionaries. The city quickly grew into a bustling metropolis and was nicknamed the Paris of the Plains due to its sin-filled nightlife and jazz music. Kansas City has always acted as a crossroads for America, first as a cow town and major stockyard, and then the headquarters for one of the world's most famous airlines, 
Transworld Airlines. TWA is an American business legend that started as a wild idea in 1930 in Kansas City. Like the gods above, humanity would fly across the sky. Two passenger and mail carriers merged to form the first airline, promising travel across the continental United States. By 1946, the airline had expanded into an international behemoth, with flights first to Europe, then Cairo, Bombay, and Manila. A Trans-Pacific route opened in the late 1960s, which made it truly possible to take TWA around the world. TWA was known as the Gentleman's Airline. Frequented by figures like Presidents Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, even James Bond flew in their planes in the movie Diamonds Are Forever. The first-class menu rivaled the banquets of King Henry VIII. Three popes chartered its jets. But to make this glamorous world-connecting airline work, TWA needed employees. Lots of employees. By 1969, it employed 42,000 people. TWA was also subject to the Railway Labor Act, and over 50% of its workforce was unionized. As labor relations could sometimes be contentious, detailed collective bargaining contracts were set up to streamline employee rights and obligations. Writing the contracts took significant manpower and bargaining to produce, and were treated very seriously. Any airline also needs a place to service its planes. After heavy rains of biblical proportions flooded out the Missouri River in 1951, the Kansas City International Airport was built on the ruins, 15 miles northwest of downtown Kansas City. TWA planned to make it the airport of the future. It also established a massive overhaul and maintenance base near the airport to service its jets. There were two major buildings. Building 1 would overhaul its airframes, and Building 2 would repair its aircraft engines. The overhaul base became the main repair shop for TWA's entire transport system. Due to its importance, it operated around the clock, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. This is where Larry G. Hardison comes in. Hardison was hired by TWA on June 5, 1967. Hardison wanted to work in TWA's store department at the overhaul base in Building 1. The store department was responsible for delivering parts and materials to the mechanics to repair aircraft and engines. When Hardison applied for employment, he indicated he was willing to work any shift, including weekends. He did not request any religious accommodations for this role. As a unionized employee with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, his employment was governed by a collective bargaining agreement. Now, the most important part of this agreement was the seniority provision. It's hard to overstate how important seniority was for employees at TWA. Seniority was an omnipresent, semi-divine force. Employees who were hired received a rank based on the date that they were hired. One seniority rank determined who could be laid off first in a reduction in force. It gave preferences for shift assignments, vacation dates, biddings for job vacancies and for promotions, demotions and transfers. Some employees valued their seniority with religious devotion. Less than a year after his employment began, Hardison's life radically changed. He began to study the religion known as the Worldwide Church of God. It was the spring of 1968. Titanic events were ripping the country apart. In Vietnam, the Tet Offensive had just begun earlier in the year, which had created a crisis for the Johnson administration and belief that America was losing the war. In April, 
Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, causing massive riots to break out across American cities. It was a time of deep reflection for many Americans. The Worldwide Church of God offered answers with a uniquely American and stern theology. Founded in the 1930s as the Radio Church of God by Herbert W. Armstrong, an American newspaper advertising designer, the church had pioneered radio and TV evangelism in the World Tomorrow program. Herbert Armstrong became the church's chosen apostle and adopted a cocktail of fundamental Christianity, tithing, as well as a number of other doctrines practiced by Judaism and Seventh-day Adventists. One of their most important tenets concerned the Sabbath and maintaining a day of rest. The Worldwide Church of God believed that the Bible taught the Sabbath was to be observed from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. Work was not to be performed during the Sabbath. These teachings were based on the Bible's book of Exodus, which clearly instructed in the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. The teachings of the Worldwide Church of God took strong root in Kansas City. Because of its location in the center of the country, it had become a major hub for the church's activity. Larry Hardison was converted after listening to the church's teachings and determined that he could no longer work on the Sabbath because it was against God's will. Upon learning about the importance of the Sabbath, Larry Hardison contacted TWA on April the 26th, 1968. He wrote to the manager of the store system, Everett Cushman, and requested either Friday and Saturday off, or from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset off, with the hours taken off Friday to be worked on Saturday evening or Sunday. He explained, quote, My reason is, I sincerely believe this is the Sabbath, and no servile work may be done then. End quote. Now, there are always people who get a little suspicious whenever there is such a sudden change of heart like this. I mean, just a few months before, Hardison had no problem working the Saturday Sabbath. But let's not forget that rapid conversion events are not unique in human history. They happen all the time. The most famous example I can think of is St. Paul's conversion on the way to Damascus, where he had an epiphany and suddenly converted to Christian teaching. Or look at Martin Luther. After he got stuck in a lightning storm, he decided to give up law practice to become a monk. It happened in the blink of an eye. In Hardison's case, his conversion appears to have been just as rapid, but there was never any evidence that his beliefs were insincere. Everett Cushman initially took his accommodation request seriously. After receiving Hardison's correspondence, he immediately arranged an in-person meeting two days later to discuss the request. At that time, Hardison discussed the religious changes which had recently redefined his life. He explained that his new religion had special holidays, and they had a religious obligation on his new Sabbath not to work. Cushman did not object to Hardison's new belief system, but expressed worry about staffing Hardison's job under the seniority provisions of the collective bargaining agreement. He was unsure if the union would allow that. After the meeting, Cushman contacted TWA's industrial relations representative, Burns Peter, and advised that he agreed the union steward could seek to swap days with Hardison and other employees. All seemed to be going well, but about a week later, on May the 3rd, 1968, Hardison's request started hitting some rough turbulence. Peter advised Cushman, quote, I haven't made any headway. His time off and day off requirements are too difficult to handle. I understand that no one would swap days off with him, end quote. 
In September 1968, a major meeting was held, this time between Hardison, Everett Cushman, and the union steward, James Tinder. The goal was to resolve Hardison's needs. Cushman said he could give Hardison the religious holidays he wanted if he agreed to work other holidays. The union steward did not have any issues with that, but he drew a firm line on the weekly Sabbath request. The seniority requirements would not be waived in any manner, shape, or form. Any swap or job change would have to be made in compliance with seniority rankings. Now, this position created a big problem for Hardison for two reasons. First, a voluntary swap arrangement for a weekend shift would be difficult to manage over the long term. It's pretty universal that no one likes to work on Saturdays. There might not be a lot of volunteers for that, as TWA's industrial representative acknowledged. But the bigger problem was that the shift swap was subject to seniority rights. Anytime a shift swap was created, an employee with more seniority could jump in and take that shift opening over the last senior worker. What good would it do Hardison if he convinced someone else to swap shifts with him, and then that shift would just get taken away by someone with higher seniority? Without a move from TWA to alter his schedule, Hardison continued working on Friday evenings and Saturdays. Around October 1968, he informed Cussman that he had used his seniority to transfer on his own initiative to the graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Although he would now assume the lifestyle of a vampire, working at night, sleeping by day, this eliminated the need for a Sabbath day accommodation for the time being. Things quieted down for two months, but on December the 2nd, 1968, Hardison suddenly shifted course again. He voluntarily transferred from the store's stockroom section in Building 1, in which he had more seniority, to the store's progress section in Building 2, where he would have lower seniority. Now, you may be wondering, why go to a building with less seniority? That doesn't make sense. Well, when Hardison made the bid for the new position, he indicated the reason for the transfer was his recent marriage. Day work was apparently more compatible with married life than night work. Imagine that. A wife actually likes seeing her husband every once in a while. She doesn't want him working the night shift. The position in Building 2 also seemed like a safer option, because he could work 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., Monday through Friday. The position solved a lot of problems when he sat down and actually thought about it. See daylight again, make his wife happy, observe the Sabbath. It was too good to be true. And it was. But to be fair, his plan worked for a while. Hardison had no difficulty in observing the Sabbath for three months until March 1969. But, as we'll soon see, when another employee suddenly went on vacation, his well-laid plans fell apart. This employee who went on vacation had less seniority than Hardison. As Hardison was next up the seniority line, he now needed to work Friday evenings and Saturdays. This threw a wrench in the whole plan. Realizing the vacation schedule would create a conflict for Hardison's observance of the Sabbath, Everett Cushman organized another meeting with the union steward, James Tinder. The group talked again about a number of options, but things never really got off the ground. Cushman suggested that Hardison see if any employees would voluntarily swap shifts with him, but Tinder again explained that any swaps would have to be made open to everyone under typical seniority rules. That is, if another job was open, Hardison could bid for it and obtain it only if he had high enough seniority. But, 
As we've talked about already, Hardison had low seniority in this building. This was effectively a veto of this option. Hardison then suggested he be allowed Saturdays off without pay. TWA wouldn't agree to that proposal as the company would be short-staffed. Hardison then said he would work six days a week so long as he did not have to work the Sabbath. James Tinder explained this option interfered with the contract's 40-hour work clause. Working so many hours would entitle Hardison to overtime pay, which conflicted again with seniority rules. Hardison provided one more idea. Let him switch to a graveyard shift with another employee who was unhappy with that shift. Again, though, the union objected that this would conflict with seniority rights, and around and around they went. I'm sure it all seemed rather Kafka-esque to Hardison. Was accommodating him really so difficult? He was caught between TWA and his union, both of whom had apparently concluded they could not accommodate his Sabbath observance. Yet there were hundreds of employees who could cover his shift that he could see every day. Hardison was obviously upset and angry about the whole ordeal. He did not report to work on Saturday, March the 8th and March 15th, after his request for accommodations were denied. After missing work, Hardison was warned by TWA's supervisor of stores planning and control that if he did not report to work on Saturday, March the 22nd, a discharge hearing would be scheduled for failing to report to work. Hardison again did not appear for his shift. Prior to the discharge hearing, Hardison transferred to a twilight shift from 3 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. But, in keeping with his religious beliefs, he left work at sundown on Friday, March the 28th, 1969. A discharge hearing was called up, and at the hearing, Hardison probably thought he had been arraigned at a kangaroo court. TWA was the judge, and the union, who he believed had refused to accommodate him, was brought in to defend him. The union made no attempt to discuss civil rights laws concerning religious accommodations, but instead simply pleaded for TWA to show mercy. It didn't work. TWA terminated Hardison on April 2, 1969. After being fired, Hardison sought legal counsel in downtown Kansas City to see if his rights had been violated. He found a young attorney named William H. Pickett, who had just graduated from the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Law. Although young and still a little wet behind the ears, Pickett was intelligent and focused and had developed a reputation for early success in civil rights cases. Nicknamed Wild Bill by some of his friends, he thought you should either go big or go home. And William Pickett had big plans for Hardison and his case. The law around religious discrimination had witnessed rapid changes over the previous years. In 1965, following the assassination of President Kennedy, Congress enacted Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which broadly prohibited discrimination in the workplace, and specifically included religion as a protected characteristic. But as originally enacted, Title VII failed to include any provision to require affirmative steps to accommodate religious beliefs. There was also a lack of legislative history about why religion was even included in the bill as a protected category. It seemed like it had just been shoehorned in at the last second. The EEOC acted quickly after the law was passed to issue guidelines in 1966, which said accommodations should be made unless they'd cause serious inconvenience to the employer's business. Courts were forced to step in. Things went bad for religious accommodations at first. 
In the case Dewey v. Reynolds Metal Company, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals reviewed a termination which resulted when an employee refused to work mandatory overtime shifts because of his Sabbath observance. His employment was governed by a collective bargaining agreement. The Sixth Circuit found that accommodating the employee would have resulted in reverse discrimination against employees who did not harbor religious beliefs. The case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, but in a 4-4 decision, the Supreme Court was unable to effectively resolve the issue. As a result of the decision in Dewey, a Democratic senator from West Virginia named Jennings Randolph went on a rampage. He was a Seventh-day Baptist, a group which practices the Sabbath as a memorial of creation. Senator Randolph believed that the courts had completely ignored the intent of Title VII. He quickly introduced legislation to amend Title VII to protect Sabbatarians from religious discrimination in the workplace, stating, quote, Unfortunately, the courts have, in a sense, come down on both sides of this issue. The Supreme Court of the United States, in a case involving the observance of the Sabbath and job discrimination, divided evenly on this question. This amendment is intended, in good purpose, to resolve by legislation that which the courts have not resolved, end quote. The amendment tracked new EEOC guidelines, which issued in 1967. It said that employers should provide reasonable accommodations for the religious needs of employees. However, although Senator Randolph thought accommodation issues were now resolved, he was terribly, terribly wrong. Critically, the amendment still did not provide any guidance on what was a reasonable accommodation, except to say that the accommodation could not impose an undue burden on the employer. What does undue burden mean as stated in Title VII? That's a very good question. I wish I could tell you. It's a term which leaves much to the eye of the beholder. Even Senator Randolph had to admit that the amendment language had gray areas. The question was wide open. And Larry Hardison and William Pickett planned to aim big, climb the legal mountaintop to the Supreme Court, and define the term undue burden to save his job. By February the 10th, 1972, Hardison exhausted his administrative remedies with the EEOC. He then filed suit against TWA and the multiple unions which purported to represent him, the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, its District 142, and his local Chapter 1650. He alleged that all defendants had practiced religious discrimination against him by failing to accommodate his Sabbath request. The case would be heard in the Western District Court of Missouri before Judge John W. Oliver. Judge Oliver received his Bachelor of Laws from the University of Missouri School of Law in 1936. After working in private practice and democratic politics, he was appointed to the bench by President John F. Kennedy in 1962. The case progressed very rapidly. TWA was initially represented by James Mullenkamp, its associate general counsel who had worked for the company since 1965. The company would soon enlist another attorney named George Feldmiller, a commercial trial lawyer. On their side, the unions retained Michael Gordon, an experienced litigator with a local law firm in Kansas City. TWA and the unions joined forces in a weird, the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of way. Each separately argued that Title VII did not require the accommodation of an employee's religious beliefs or voiding seniority rights for the religious beliefs of employees. TWA also took a novel position 
that a law requiring an employer to accommodate the religious needs of employees violated the Establishment Clause of the United States Constitution. TWA argued that accommodation regulations place the sanction of law behind religion by facilitating and encouraging employees to take time off from their jobs for religious reasons, which unfairly aided the religious against non-believers. The trial was held on October the 18th, 1972, about nine months after the case was filed. It was a bench trial and was rather uneventful since it was primarily based on stipulated facts. However, seven witnesses testified. There was not too much disagreement on the actual facts. What mattered was how the court would interpret those facts to determine whether an undue burden had been shown. This question proved very difficult to answer, and it would take the court a long, long time to figure it out. Almost 19 months. But finally, on May the 15th, 1974, the court announced its decision. Things started off with a pleasant takeoff. The court noted, quote, This case is a perfect example of a situation in which a union could accommodate a member if required to do so, end quote. Okay, go on, I'm sure Hardison was probably thinking. The court further agreed that the law imposed a duty on employers and unions to accommodate employees' religious beliefs and rejected TWA's Establishment Clause argument. The duty to accommodate employees had a secular purpose, to guarantee that an employee would not be discharged from his job merely because of his religion. It was to protect job security for religious groups, not to primarily promote the religion of those groups. There was a big distinction there. But then, after saying all this, the sky started falling, and Hardison's case crashed into the inferno. The court first turned to the Union defendants. Although they had a duty to accommodate Hardin's religious beliefs, any accommodation would require suspension of seniority rules in the collective bargaining agreement. Waiving the seniority rules would cause an undue hardship on the unions and their membership, who relied on seniority benefits for industrial peace. Citing to a Michigan Law Review article by Professor Harry T. Edwards and Joel Kaplan, the court explained that Hardison was essentially asking the court to impose a priority of the religious over the secular. He asked rhetorically, quote, What of the hardship imposed on the employee who waited a long time to acquire sufficient seniority in order to avoid weekend work and is now forced back into it because of someone else's religious beliefs? Are the religious beliefs of the individual so weighty that they supersede the lack of religious beliefs in another? End quote. The court also seemed to really struggle with another portion of Title VII, which allowed companies to use bona fide seniority systems if they were non-discriminatory. The court believed Hardison had not shown that the neutral seniority system was designed to discriminate or acted to lock members of a religious group out of the company. In a similar manner, requiring TWA to break the seniority system would also have put an undue burden on the company. The company would have been flooded with labor litigation and personnel problems. Were options available to TWA to work around the seniority system? The court looked at a few. Hardison had suggested that TWA should just let him take off Saturdays and not fill that shift. The court thought this was a non-starter because that would leave the company short-staffed. Another option was to just add another shift and pay overtime wages to the employee for that shift. The court thought this option was too expensive and companies were not required to finance religious beliefs. The court stated in no uncertain terms, quote, 
The duty to accommodate does not require that an employer make every effort short of going out of business to permit his employees to observe their religion, and does not impose hardships on the rest of his employees to accommodate the religious beliefs of the few. End quote. There is only a duty to take affirmative action to try to find a way to permit the employee to observe his religion as he wishes. Here, TWA took affirmative steps. The company held several meetings. It also agreed to allow the union steward to work out shift changes with Hardison. Although the problem couldn't be worked out because of the seniority provision, that wasn't a failure to accommodate. Further, Hardison short-circuited the whole accommodation process when he transferred to a building with low seniority for his marriage. The court entered judgment in favor of TWA and the unions. Larry Hardison and William Pickett were very disappointed at this outcome. To them, it seemed like the court was overly hostile to Hardison's religious beliefs. But given the novel issues at stake regarding the meaning of the terms reasonable accommodation and undue burden, there was still hope that an appeals court might see things differently. Big national issues were at stake for a number of religious minority groups who practiced the Sabbath, including Jews, Seventh-day Adventists, and other groups. With a flood of bad law threatening to engulf them, Larry Hardison and William Pickett called out for help to the National Jewish Commission on Law and Public Affairs, an association of attorneys who represented the observant Jewish community on legal and legislative matters. Nathan Lewin, a well-recognized civil rights attorney and former law clerk for the Supreme Court, dropped in like an olive branch from the sky. He would provide arguments at both the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court level as amicus curiae, or a friend of the court. Forced to flee Poland ahead of the Nazis in 1939, Lewin graduated from Harvard Law School and had a strong background in religious discrimination cases. He was frequently involved in lawsuits on behalf of Jews facing discrimination over the Sabbath and other issues. He would prove critical to the case. William Pickett filed an appeal to the Eighth Circuit. However, to simplify the lawsuit, he narrowed the issues by focusing on TWA's failure to accommodate. The union's responsibilities were not substantially reviewed. Hardison hoped for a miracle, and his prayers were soon answered. Hardison received a very strong appeals panel, including none other than Judge Donald Lay and Myron Bright. If you recall from episode 4, this was the dynamic duo who only a few years before had single-handedly breathed new life into Percy Green's lawsuit against McDonnell Douglas Corporation. They had written such a favorable standard of proof for the plaintiff in that case that it required substantial revision by the Supreme Court. Both Donald Lay and Myron Bright were well known for their liberal views of civil rights, and were nominated to the bench by Lyndon Johnson. The third judge who was placed on the appeals panel was William Hedgecock Webster. He was a Republican and a respected jurist, a political heavy hitter who would go on to act first as director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and then director of the CIA, the only person to serve both roles. Whereas Percy Green's appeal had been notoriously fractured, the appellate decision issued by the Eighth Circuit in Hardison's case on December the 16th 1975, spoke as one voice. The district court had committed reversible error. Becoming rather biblical, and citing Matthew chapter 27, the Eighth Circuit informed TWA that it could not accept the role of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, who had crucified Jesus after an uncompromising request from his accusers. 
Congress's 1972 amendment to Title VII had removed all doubt that companies had a duty to reasonably accommodate the religious beliefs of their employees. The duty to accommodate did not unconstitutionally establish or primarily aid religion. Hardison was willing to work long weeks or short weeks, and had even transferred to a twilight shift to self-accommodate his religious beliefs. The company had made little to no effort to meet him halfway. The court then rattled off the missed opportunities open to TWA, who had improperly washed its hands of the whole affair. TWA could have permitted Hardison to work a four-day week. Although TWA argued it would be short-handed during one shift, the court noted that TWA had the burden to provide facts to support this conclusion and had not done so. Additionally, this was a false statement. Hardison had changed shifts at the end so that he would be able to work Friday until sundown. Thus, the company only needed to provide another worker for a little more than half a shift. He could work some part of Friday. TWA also had other options. They could hold a worker over from the last shift. They could call a worker in early. They could reassign work to 200 qualified workers nearby. The district court said these options were not reasonable because the company would have to pay overtime and it was not required to go out of business to permit employees to observe their religion. Just what was that court talking about? What a misstatement of reality. Let's not kid ourselves here. Hardison was the first employee to request a Sabbath at TWA's Kansas City facilities. Paying a few hours of overtime for one employee a few hours a week would not have broken the bank for an international airline. Now, the case could have stopped here, but the Eighth Circuit just kept preaching. They wanted to tackle the problem of the seniority provision itself. Although they were not required to decide whether the seniority provision could have been waived, the court argued that such provisions should be overturned in future cases because they unfairly discriminate against religious groups, stating, quote, If Saturday work inevitably falls to the employees with lowest seniority, one may well ask whether such seniority provisions would not effectively preclude TWA from ever hiring those Seventh-day Adventists, Orthodox Jews, and members of the Worldwide Church of God whose religious convictions preclude work from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. It is no answer to such a person, or to the statute itself, that if he compromises his religious beliefs for a time, he may develop enough seniority to practice them again. End quote. And the court has a point here, doesn't it? If your religious beliefs state you can't work on Saturday, and a bunch of companies have seniority provisions which effectively prevent you from swapping shifts to avoid Saturday work, you really don't have an equal opportunity to work for those companies because of your religious beliefs. It looks like what we saw in episode 3 when we reviewed disparate impact cases. A neutral policy was potentially screening out minorities. The Eighth Circuit decision was devastating for TWA. No one likes to be cast in the role of Pontius Pilate. The bloody toga of a Roman autocrat is not really a good look for an airline wanting to project an image of the carefree spirit of the skies. TWA also felt like they had made significant efforts to try and work around the union contract. There had also been a miscommunication below about the district court record. TWA thought that the Eighth Circuit had the entire trial record before it, but somehow wires got crossed, and the Eighth Circuit only received the trial appendix. TWA believed this debacle messed up the entire review. This is a good lesson for everyone out there. Always, always double-check and make sure the appeals court receives your record. Anyway, 
TWA appealed the case to the Supreme Court on February the 9th, 1976. The company had to wait nine months before learning the case would be reviewed one more time. In essence, TWA argued that the Eighth Circuit misapplied the undue burden standard created by Title VII, and that allowing accommodations would unconstitutionally establish religion by requiring companies to finance employee religious beliefs. TWA also felt that the Eighth Circuit had taken it upon itself to re-review all the evidence de novo with an incomplete record. Oral arguments were held in March 1977. It ended up being a very hot panel with numerous questions from the Supreme Court justices. There were multiple questions attempting to understand why the bidding process prevented a shift change. Justice John Paul Stevens asked TWA's attorney, George Feldmiller, whether it was really true that 200 people were available to swap shifts with Hardison. Feldmiller agreed that 200 people could have stepped in, theoretically, but none of those people were available within the terms of the collective bargaining agreement. TWA had agreed to let Hardison try to find alternative employees to take his shift, but the union would not waive their agreement, and there were probably no employees who would agree to work the weekend anyway. The company's hands were tied, not Pontius Pilate tied, mind you, really tied. If TWA went to the other employees and tried to drum up volunteers for Hardison, they might be subject to complaints they were coercing people contrary to the contract. Justice William Brennan stepped in here and asked what provision the company and the union had made, if any, to those who observed the Sabbath on Sunday. Feldmiller explained that whether the Sabbath was on Sunday or Saturday, the result would be the same. Accommodating a request for a weekend day off would have been extremely difficult. TWA operated a 24-hour business. Every day was critical. The company could not fulfill its functions if all religious employees wanted to take Saturday or Sunday off. During the union's turn, their new counsel, Mozart Ratner, stood up to speak. Having formerly worked as Assistant General Counsel to the National Labor Relations Board, Ratner had argued at the Supreme Court many times before. He reaffirmed that there was absolutely, positively, no way to accommodate Hardison and keep the agreement intact. Seniority rights were important. The unions were responsible for ensuring that seniority was not taken away from anyone. If the unions didn't do that, members would argue they were not being fairly represented. Larry Hardison's attorney, William Pickett, had barely taken the stand when he was bombarded with questions about the case. What did Hardison actually want to happen? Pickett explained Hardison just wanted to work his job, as long as it did not require him to work Saturday. It was pretty simple. Justice Byron White, who would end up writing the opinion of the case, asked Pickett what should happen if an employee could not be accommodated without violating a collective bargaining agreement. Pickett explained that decision did not need to be reached because the company had other ways to accommodate Hardison outside of the collective bargaining agreement. A supervisor could cover. Someone could stay after their shift. They could have posted his job opening to see if anyone would take the bid. The company had done nothing to assist Hardison. At this, Justice Thurgood Marshall asked, quote, You did say TWA did nothing. Who was that man that wrote the letter and said, You come in and let us talk this over? Unquote. Pickett replied that that had been Everett Cushman with TWA. Justice Marshall asked whether it was more accurate to say TWA did not do enough than to say TWA did nothing. Pickett stood firm 
and argued the company had not done anything of substance to assist Hardison in practicing his religion. Justice Warren Berger then asked an interesting hypothetical. What happens to supermarkets who have a policy of not hiring Sabbatarians? Saturday and Sunday are the busiest days of the week for these companies. Pickett explained facts would need to be decided on a case-by-case basis, but federal law could require accommodation if no undue burden was involved. Finally, Nathan Lewin was given a chance to speak for the Orthodox Jewish community. Emphasizing that laws should override contracts, he argued that a company and a union could not make an enforceable collective bargaining agreement to sell, for example, the Brooklyn Bridge. Hardison had a federal right to an accommodation. He never gave that right to TWA to barter. TWA could not just hide behind the contract as a way to discard its responsibilities under Title VII to reasonably accommodate its employees. The Supreme Court took the case under advisement. Each side held their breath. And on June the 16th, 1977, the opinion was finally announced. As I said at the beginning, Hardison lost and the Eighth Circuit was reversed in a 7-2 vote. Supreme Court Justice Byron Wizer White wrote the decision. Justice White has an interesting backstory you typically don't see on the court. He was a football legend, having played the professional sport in the 1930s and 40s for the Detroit Lions and the Pittsburgh Pirates, before they were the Steelers. He then served as an intelligence officer in World War II, attended Yale Law School, and worked as the Colorado State Chair of John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign. His work for President Kennedy would ultimately get him appointed to be the Deputy Attorney General and then to the Supreme Court in 1962. Although he was appointed at the height of the liberal era of Chief Justice Earl Warren, Justice White developed a reputation of a conservative moderate. His opinion attempted to avoid all-or-nothing extremes. Hardison won a major victory at the beginning of the decision. The Supreme Court acknowledged for the first time that the 1972 amendment to Title VII required employers to accommodate the religious needs of their employees, unless there was a showing of undue hardship or burden. There was a duty to accommodate which did not conflict with the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. However, the problem was Congress had provided no guidance for determining the degree of accommodations required of an employer. This was uncharted territory. The court would need to fill in the gaps. The Eighth Circuit had ruled against TWA because it believed the company's efforts were minimal to non-existent. Looking back at the same record, though, the Supreme Court disagreed. Like the district court, it thought TWA made reasonable, although unsuccessful, efforts to accommodate Hardison. TWA held several meetings. It offered to provide certain religious holidays off. It authorized the union steward to search for someone to change shifts with Hardison. This was not nothing, at least according to the court. Was it reasonable to require TWA to violate and ignore the collective bargaining agreement's seniority system to accommodate Hardison? The court said no, for several reasons. First, Title VII had a provision that said an employer could apply different employment terms pursuant to a seniority system. This provision had to be read alongside the accommodation provision. Second, collective bargaining agreements were a major part of national labor policy, and seniority systems were universally included in all such agreements. Without a clear instruction from Congress that it intended the accommodation provision of Title VII to override all seniority systems throughout the country, 
the court was hesitant to invalidate such provisions. Third, Title VII was designed to eliminate discrimination. If neutral seniority systems were discarded and work shifts were assigned by religious preferences, non-religious persons who had strong but non-religious reasons for working on the weekends would face unequal treatment by being provided the less favorable shifts. The court thought this was unfair and contrary to the purpose of the statute to level the playing field. The court next reviewed whether there were any accommodations TWA could have made outside the seniority system. The Eighth Circuit had suggested that TWA allow Hardison to work a four-day week, replace Hardison with supervisory or other personnel from other departments, or pay overtime wages to have the position filled. The court noted in the most famous passage from the case, quote, to require TWA to bear more than a de minimis cost in order to give Hardison Saturdays off is an undue hardship. Like abandonment of the seniority system, to require TWA to bear additional costs when no such costs are incurred to give other employees the days off that they want would involve unequal treatment of employees on the basis of their religion. End quote. That was it. The costs requested by Hardison to practice his Sabbath cause an undue burden to TWA's business. His legal appeals were officially over. It was a disappointing decision to Hardison and had taken eight years of his life to achieve. Like an angel of death, the de minimis standard seemed to come from nowhere to kill his claim. Although William Pickett attempted to argue the cost for accommodating Hardison could run a couple hundred dollars, which is pretty minimal, the court felt the case involved more than just Hardison. TWA was a big company. If more employees came forward in the aggregate, this could impose substantial costs. The Supreme Court's ruling proved controversial from the moment it issued. Justice William Brennan's and Thurgood Marshall's dissent prophesied catastrophe. They accused the majority of adopting the very position Congress expressly rejected in 1972 when it amended Title VII to expressly include an accommodation provision. Through the creation of a judge-made de minimis standard, seven justices had rendered the right to accommodation meaningless. An employer was not required to grant even the most minor special privileges to religious employees and force them to make the cruel decision of surrendering their religion or their job. Within two months, Congress initiated a long and continuing effort to override the decision. In August 1977, New York Congressman Stephen J. Salars introduced legislation to replace the term undue hardship with severe material hardship. In the spring of 1978, the EEOC also initiated a series of aggressive hearings to address the ramifications of the Supreme Court's ruling, which it described as a troubling decision which had caused widespread confusion. Many employers were now operating under the assumption that accommodation rights had been completely overruled. The EEOC quickly issued new guidance in 1980 stipulating that the duty to accommodate still existed, and it would not accept the de minimis standard had been met by a mere assumption that several other employees would require religious accommodations. Efforts to amend Title VII's accommodation provision have continued for over 40 years. In 1994, another piece of bipartisan legislation was introduced called the Workplace Religious Freedom Act. Reintroduced multiple times to Congress by political figures like John Kerry, Rick Santorum, Hillary Clinton, and Ted Kennedy, it has never passed. The proposed bill would reject the de minimis standard and seek to define undue burden more stringently. 
the employer would have to show the accommodation imposes a significant difficulty or expense on its business. Criticism of the bill has come from many angles, and along the same lines as were presented in Hardison's lawsuit. Some groups believe it could legalize acts of discrimination in the name of religion against other groups. Non-religious employees might be required to carry the workload of other religious employees. If broad enough, the bill might unconstitutionally establish religion. Others say it could impose enormous costs on business. This podcast will not take a position on the merits or the demerits of the bill. I'll leave it up to my listeners to decide what standard should be applied and whether undue burden should mean severe material hardship, serious inconvenience, significant difficulty or expense, or de minimis. It's an interesting debate, and no doubt reasonable minds can defer. But even if we could agree on what standard to use, would it make a difference without further guidance, or would the courts again be required to use their own individual judgment to resolve these claims? I think that's a difficult question. Today, the de minimis standard endures as the law of the land for how far an employer must go to accommodate religious beliefs in the workplace. The fact numerous amendments to change this standard have failed reflects that there remains some congressional support for the court's approach, and that it may sufficiently balance competing interests. Although it is a light requirement, and religious discrimination claims seem to be rising, many employees across the country have used the standard to practice their Sabbath, wear religious clothing, and receive other accommodations. Hardison's efforts are far from being in vain. His case achieved relief for many people. While TWA ultimately claimed victory, it did not survive for long afterward. The end was nigh. In 1978, one year after the case was decided, President Jimmy Carter signed the Airline Deregulation Act, sacrificing a tidy but bloated and orderly system of cost and profit for a meat grinder of desperate competition. TWA began to hemorrhage money, and its parent company cast it aside like a wingless albatross. After limping along through a number of bankruptcies, TWA flew its last flight in 2001, before merging with American Airlines. The maintenance base in Kansas City, where Hardison worked, was closed for good in 2010. As for Larry Hardison, he never returned to TWA. He drifted off into private life and lived quietly. Nathan Lewin reports that he did not speak with him after the case for a long time. Last year, though, Hardison reached out to him to thank him for his efforts in the appeal. Hardison said that, 42 years later, he was still a Sabbatarian and keeps all the appointed times. Both Hardison and Lewin continue to pray that the Supreme Court will repent for their decision and save the faithful with a stronger accommodation standard in the future. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will see you next time on Employment Law Legends. Thank you.